Good afternoon, friends. It's um, good to be in your company and, and thank you for making the time for, for the message that is now um, a few months old. <laughs> um, the, the first time I, I gave this message was on the 27th of February. And unfortunately, it wasn't recorded. So I've been asked to, to redo it. And um, the, the title of the message is Our Garden, Our Purpose is the Common Good. It is part of the, the fifth week of, of the six-week journey that we did through purpose over January and, 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 and February of this year, 2022. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Colin Habiton. Um, I am the very lucky husband of Gabrielle, who some of you know. Uh, the father of uh, a daughter called Eden and a son called Samuel. I'm also the son of Peter Habiton, who on the 27th of February turned 70. And uh, I wished him happy that uh, happy birthday that day. Uh, and I wish him uh, the same the same today. It's now a couple of months later. It is, in fact, um, Easter Sunday. And what a great day to be able to share this time with you. Um, and and how thankful I think we can all say that that um, we are sons and daughters of a heavenly father who lives in a dynamic community uh, with Jesus, our savior, and the Holy Spirit, our helper, um, which I hope is going to be part of what I want to share with you today. Over the, the, the weeks that we chatted through purpose, we learned that we don't have one individualistic purpose. Uh, Angela showed us how our purpose is Christ. Julie, the week later, shared how our purpose is to be like Christ. Dave encouraged us in seeing our purpose rooted in community. And today, I'd like to challenge and celebrate uh, a fourth dimension of our purpose, which is for the common good. By common good, I mean that each one of us as individuals, as well as collectively as a church, may find ways to live out the gospel, meaning the good news announced by Jesus in his ministry, carried across the world by his apostles and teachings uh, of an era that we still live in today, where God's kingdom has come um, and, and, and life, as God planned for us, has been restored to us. Could this be true? Yes. Yes. God, our Father, loves us. Jesus, as we have gone through over this Easter weekend, as we remember, um, in sacrificial love, what he did for us, that he died for us, setting us free from the slavery of sin. And he sent the spirit to empower us, equipping us for the common good, for loving people, not just inside, but outside the church too. In other words, our lives and work are part of demonstrating his kingdom to other people on earth. Traditionally, this might mean Things like selecting a career that serves the needs of other people or practically serving the vulnerable and marginalized in our city or lobbying for a justice issue or being a better system, a citizen or, 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 or seeking to overcome the divides between groups of people or helping, for example, the company that you work in to make a difference for good in the world over and above. What, it, what its other purposes might be in terms of profit and the various products, products and services that it's about. You might be asking yourself, though, but, but what happens if I'm not an activist doing something like that? If I don't 
tick anything on that list about going out and doing something? How can I still serve the common good? Maybe that's not just my calling. Well, I believe that your purpose and the common good starts with realizing that God has already placed all of us intentionally somewhere with opportunities to serve him where you are, as you are. As it says in Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Those are such encouraging words, words to launch a thousand fridge magnets, bookmarks and coffee and coffee cups. But more seriously, but do you know, really, really know the plans that God has for you or where to find them or know for sure when you do? Genesis 1 tells us that after God created the heavens and the earth, he placed humanity in a garden with blessing and a responsibility. Verse 26, then God said, let us make humans in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created humans in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit. And you have them for food. And to every beast of the earth. And to every bird of the heavens. And to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. In Genesis 2 the story continues. In verse 8, 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what do we take from this? God placed humanity in a garden. Secondly, that they, we, are all made in God's image. We were given dominion. The word used in the English translated uh, in most of our Bibles. But the original Hebrew in the Genesis scroll was something more nuanced. Using the word rada, meaning to hold sway or to rule. Our rulership does not translate to destructive or extractive authority, but rather to be stewards of his creation, having power and influence to oversee the reproduction of plants and animals God had given them for food as well as themselves. God gave them a common place created for them, filled with life and with God's blessing to regenerate through care and attention to keep them and live in all God planned for them, not just to survive but to thrive, to cultivate that blessing for continued fruitfulness. 
humans have seemingly been unable to live up to our God-given responsibility to cultivate and conserve our common goods, destroying the environment, overfishing the seas, leading to the extinction of many plants and animals, and rampant exploitation of people and poverty around the world. In economic theory, this is called the tragedy of the commons. Thankfully, there are many examples where communities with regulated access to a common resource cooperate to use those resources carefully without collapse and even creating what is referred to as perfect order. In 2009, Eleanor Ostrom was the first woman to be awarded the Nobel Prize for Economics for demonstrating how local physical and digital communities are able to do this without government regulation or privatization through trust, reciprocity, communication, self-governance, and adaptation to local conditions. From my perspective, we need more women to win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> I have a few questions I would like you to think about. What are your commons that you share with others? What part do you play in being a con in contributing to how good they are, how they are cared for and shared. A story that Terran shared with me is of King Lee the Henry III of Bavaria in the 11th century. He grew tired of court life and the pressures of being a monarch. He made application to a local monk asking to be accepted to spend the rest of his life in his monastery. Your majesty, said Prior Richard, do you understand that the pledge here is one of obedience? That it will be hard because you have been a king. I understand, said Henry. The rest of my life I will be obedient to you as Christ leads you. Then I will tell you what to do, said the monk. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has put you. When King Henry died, a statement was written, the king learned to rule by being obedient. What is the lesson we take from this? When we tire of our roles and responsibilities, it helps to remember that God has planted us in a certain place and given the opportunity to use whatever is at, at our disposal. Our gifts, our experiences, our career, our credentials, our, our connections to serve God's kingdom the restoration of the life as God has planned, the common good of his people and his planet. A question that has challenged me in preparing for today's message is that when thinking about our purpose for the common good, could it be that like in the story of the German king in the creation story, that God placed each of us in our own garden? Could it be that our purpose is not out there, in the world waiting for us, or us finding it, but actually it is and always has been right here, right around us. For the next few minutes while I'm speaking, please think about the concept of your garden. What, and more importantly, who is planted in your garden? The people at your work, your family, your marriage, your community, your city, your country. Like the nursery rhyme says, ask yourself, how does your garden grow? If we have each been placed in a garden, what are the competencies and equipment 
we need to take care of the garden that he has given us. Where do we start? How do we see what he wants from us and what to do? Fortunately, Jesus has the wisdom we need. Let's take another look at what is referred to as the golden rule. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus and he said, Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? The expert answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. See what Jesus says? Do this. Love your neighbor as yourself and you will live. Michael Eaton suggests that in this passage, Jesus isn't teaching about getting into heaven through good deeds, though. Reading carefully, Jesus is assuming that the person who is to show love is one who already believes in him. He is going further than answering a question about how we first step into our earliest experience of the kingdom of God. Speaking to purpose, when Jesus talks about inheriting eternal life, he's referring to entering into everything that God wants to give us. It is the practice of love that will lead us to inheriting eternal life. Through the Old Testament, though the Old Testament uses the term about being rewarded with life as national prosperity, Jesus is using it more personally. Love leads to life, to liveliness, vigor, energy, inspiration, direction, and action. Loving your neighbor is invigorating. It is life-giving to them and you and all the others around you, says Jesus. Let's keep reading. But the expert in the law wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus and and said, and who is my neighbor? One thing I'm certainly guilty of is getting caught up in being busy. Life can easily get inward focused, individualistic, and hard to do anything helpful for other people. But Jesus knows how to cut through these types of excuses. Most of us know the next part of the story. So for purposes of bringing it closer to home for us, I've changed some of the names in the story. Please do not take it any of this personally, guys. And uh, it certainly applies to me for sure. A homeless guy was going down from Mowbray to Woodstock when he was attacked by, by tick addicts. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Terran happened to go down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite called Dave, who came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Muslim shopkeeper, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man in the back of his old beamer, brought him to the Upper East Side Hotel in Woodstock and took care of him. The next day, he took out 2,000 rand and gave it to the hotel reception, saying, Look after him, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, in the biblical account, uh, a Jewish man was riding through a mountainous remote area when he was robbed, beaten, and left in the road, half dead. 
these two highly respectful religious experts, a priest and a Levite, came by. They kept well away. They do not want to get involved with the time-consuming needs of an injured person. It may have been dangerous. The robbers might still be around. It will be expensive for them financially. It will have repercussions for them for a long time ahead. Now, those challenges definitely resonate with me. And if I was in a similar situation, I would have definitely been one of those people that probably would have walked by. But in that circumstance, a Samaritan walks by. Now, in the eyes of the Jews, Samaritan religion was corrupt. They were believed to be idolatrous. For centuries, they had a rival temple in a different area of of the country. Most Jews at that time despised them. In his story, it was Jewish men like Jesus. And and, and like Jesus and his are willing to walk past a Jewish man in need. Though they worry about it before they actually do so. You're my neighbor, yes, but I have to keep on moving. Had Jesus told the story as Jewish men walking past a Samaritan in need, I wonder if they would have even been surprised at all. You're not my neighbor, but look at the scenario Jesus creates. A Samaritan man is walking past a Jewish man in need, and he does more than walk past. He gets right to loving him as himself. What was so wonderful about the Samaritan? He had no religious qualifications, no theological qualifications. He had nothing to gain out of assisting this particular person. He didn't even have any value in the eyes, probably, of the Jew that he was helping. Yet, the Samaritan did not run away from that situation in need. He looked, he felt compassion. Compassion. A word that comes from Latin meaning to suffer with. To suffer with. Jesus goes on to ask, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. In the story that we've heard so many times, Jesus answers three specific questions. First, how do we enter into everything God has for us? According to Jesus, it is being like the Good Samaritan. Being a priest or leader doesn't get you a free ticket to eternity. Compassionate, sacrificial love, fueled by our dependency of our relationship with God, will lead to reaping and reflecting the evidence of his kingdom come. Being able to experience eternity is being in relationship with him and being dependent on what he has for us. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29, 12 to 14 says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. And you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now, how many of us end up feeling like we are in exile? Part of a world that doesn't make sense to us. That is the call 
that the Lord has on your heart for eternity. Second, the second question that Jesus answers for us is, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Jesus answered that by showing love is meeting the needs of another through deeds. Love is not just words or intention. It is action. The good Samaritan decided he would get involved. He did what needed to be done. He braved the danger by stopping and checking on him, seeing that he needed help, and then transporting him to a place to rest and be restored. He then paid the innkeeper for the care of the man until he fully recuperated. He sacrificed his convenience, his time, his money. He committed to cover the costs of what was needed for the full man recovery without limitations. This is what God calls us to do for others. On a day like today, Easter Sunday, that is what Jesus has done for us. He died for our sins and his blood has washed us clean. He sacrificed himself without limitations for us to be able to feel and see eternity. Back to Jeremiah 22, 3. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. What I hear these verses are saying is that sacrifice, sacrificing your will leads to the abundance of life. The third question that Jesus answered through this passage, through this parable, is who is my neighbor? Jesus refuses to let us limit not not only how we love, but who we love. (laughs) It is typical for us to think of our neighbors as people of the same social class and community, the people that live next door, when even then we might be challenged to respond. I know we are. We instinctively tend to limit how we exert ourselves, how we justify the cost of showing compassion for others, generosity for others. We usually do it for people like us and for people who we like. Jesus tells us we need to do more. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus found a way to show us that anyone in need is your neighbor, worth our attention, our care, and our cost. Regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, not everyone is your brother or sister in the faith. But everyone is your neighbor, and your neighbor shares a common creator. We can say, my purpose is the common good. Jesus' challenge is that it should, be, should start with those Jesus sees as having common worth. Love your neighbor. Here are three insights from Jesus' story that may help each one of us better fulfill our purpose of the common good. Number one, loving our neighbor is motivated not by who we are, but by God's character. God tells the story, well, God, (laughs) Jesus in the Bible tells the story, God as well, (laughs) tells the story in a way that shows he cares about people who suffer. 
and Jesus as the exact rep- representation of God who cares about the same. In Psalm 146, verses 7 to 9, David wrote, The Lord who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets the prisoners free, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down, the Lord loves the righteous, the Lord watches over the refugees, he upholds the widow and he upholds the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. When we think about social justice, it is a reflection of the character of God. If God is a God of love, mercy, and justice, then God's people, you and me, should be a reflection of those qualities. To allow injustice, to allow it, never mind to act against it, to allow it insults God and his character that he's placed in us. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. As we love our neighbors, we also show God's character to other people. Julian, the Roman emperor of the 4th century, wanted to restore pagan religions in, in his empire. He was finding resistance because of the spread of Christianity. Julian hated Christians, but he recognized they were gaining new converts because of their generosity to the poor. In a letter he wrote, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. A second reflection related to this story is that Loving our neighbor is motivated by your God-given worth. Martin Luther King once preached on this story of the Good Samaritan. He reflected that most of the time our first thoughts might be, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop and help this man, what will happen to him? The only way we will ever ask that question is if we see the value of the person. It is crucial we are given eyes to see the value of the person. The less we identify with the sufferer, the less we feel their suffering. Brain studies reveal that we feel compassion for people we know, but far less for those we don't know. We tend to feel more compassion for people we see as our equals and less for people we perceive below or above us. In one study of first year of university students who are introduced to to one another at, at an orientation event, there is a measurable difference in the way that students treated each other based on their perceived status. The more wealthy students were more standoffish and exhibited disinterest towards poorer ones, like checking the time, doodling, or fidgeting. Students from less wealthy backgrounds appeared more engaged, warm, and expressive. They made more eye contact. They nodded more. They laughed more. When we perceive someone is suffering is being beneath us, we are less 
empathetic towards them. That is our nature, our human nature. But that is not the nature that God has for us. That is not the nature that Jesus gives to us through his Holy Spirit. The solution to this is fostering greater humility in ourselves. And on seeing our own humanity in the humanity of each other and every person, regardless of their social status, regardless of where they are from or the way they might, may seem. For the Samaritan, that leading person on the side of the road, he, that person suffered with him and cared for him. No matter the differences we see or feel between ourselves and someone else, that person was made like you in the image of our creator. Every person, therefore, carries the right not to be mistreated or harmed. With the image of God in us and on us, we should value every person as being equal in worth and equal and deserving of our care. We should not serve people because of what they are or could become because they are children of God, just like us. A third reflection is that loving our neighbor should be motivated by Christ's love for us. When Jesus came, he came to walk on the road to find us in our pain, our uncertainty and injury. He stops to love and care for us. He wants to save us. But beyond the case of the Samaritan, it cost him his whole life. He has paid a debt that we could never have paid ourselves. Jesus is the Samaritan in his story. Before we can give the selfless love to others, we need to be able to receive it for ourselves. We must be centered on Christ with Jesus. And only with Jesus, we can discover clarity of purpose in our lives. Through Jesus, we find certainty. In Jesus, we develop capacity in community to finish the work he has given us. We need to be willing to sacrifice our will to receive the abundance that he has for us. Allow me to end with a reminder of the garden of perfect order God promises us in John's description in Revelation of the garden city that connects the new heaven and a new earth. If you could please spend some time, feel free to close your eyes or just to listen carefully to, to these words or take a look at them in your Bible if you have for them and allow your imagination to create this world in your mind as we close. It comes from Revelation, verse 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning 
nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son and daughter. Verse 22. Then the angel showed me the river of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne. Sorry, chapter 22. (laughs) Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The final word. I believe that it is time we all take up the invitation that Jesus has given us and return to the gardens he has planted us in, thanks to what he paid for on the cross. Let's go back to those places. God has given us where he is waiting to walk with us in the cool of each day, to be with us, care for us, and strengthen us. Let us take up our inheritance and feed ourselves from the tree of life. The common good is a God-given design. I believe our purpose is to live out that design by tending to our gardens. Loving our neighbors, all our neighbors, helping each other with their gardens. Let's build a beautiful garden city, the eternal city, together for each other forever. Amen.